The existence of God. The most important consideration of all time. Is there evidence that God exists or is it just something we accept on blind faith? More importantly, has God actually revealed himself to us? Today, one of the top living Christian philosophers discusses this issue. And you don't want to miss a minute of it. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukerin. Dr. Zukerin is a popular speaker, scholar, and author on today's most important spiritual questions. And today he interviews Dr. William Lane Craig on some of the latest scientific and philosophical insights, giving fascinating evidence for God. And while you're here, we want to invite you to our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Evidenceandanswers.org is loaded with terrific resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. And you'll want to download today's show and send it to someone you know who is a skeptic or who is seeking God in a deeper way. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org. Pat, let's pick up where we were last time with William Lane Craig. Thanks, Kevin. Yes, with us again is our guest, Dr. William Lane Craig. Dr. Craig has two doctorates, and one in theology and one in philosophy. He is one of the finest apologists of our day. He's an author. He has debated throughout the United States and throughout the world. So it's a privilege to have him with us today. Dr. Craig, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks very much, Pat. Pleasure is mine. Well, we're talking about the evidence for the existence of God. And last week we talked a little bit about the cosmological argument. Briefly summarize it for us, and then we'll get into some other arguments for the existence of God. Well, the argument we talked about last week goes like this. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. That's a great summary of the cosmological argument. Now, here's a second one that has been kind of having a revival in our time. Many of us may not have heard of this. This is the ontological argument. Dr. Craig, explain that one to us. Well, the ontological argument is a very old argument that uh, stems from St. Anselm, who was a 12th century monk in Canterbury in England. And Anselm wanted to find an argument that would demonstrate in one fell swoop the existence of God with all of his great attributes, all of God's superlative uh, properties. And Anselm had nearly given up the quest when he hit upon a definition of God that he believed unlocked the door to this argument. And that definition of God is the greatest conceivable being. When you think about who God is, it's evident that God, by definition, is the greatest conceivable being. Whether he exists or not, we're, we're not presupposing that he exists, but if, if anything could be conceived that would be greater than God, well, that would be God. So that by definition, God is the greatest conceivable being. Now, Anselm argued that once you understand this concept of a greatest conceivable being, then you'll see that God has to exist. And in, in contemporary philosophical circles, the way the argument goes is basically like this. A greatest conceivable being would be a being that exists in every possible world and is omniscient, omnipotent, and morally perfect in every possible world. That would be some of the properties that a greatest conceivable being would have to have. Omniscient, omnipotent, and morally perfect in every possible world. And it's possible that God exists. It's possible that there is such a being. Well, what that means then is that there is a possible world that we could imagine in which there is a, a being who is omniscient, omnipotent, and morally perfect, 
in every possible world. Well, if such a being exists in one possible world, that means he exists in every possible world. Now, since our world, the uh, actual world, is a possible world, it follows then that this being must exist in the actual world, and therefore God must exist. So once you grant that the existence of such a being is possible, it follows that he must actually exist. Now, when we say a possible world, Dr. Craig, we're not talking about a planet. We're talking about a uh, really a philosophical tool, meaning what? Any well, possible state right, of affairs? Well, Kevin, we, we don't mean by a possible world, a planet, or even a universe. What we mean by a possible world is a maximum description of reality, a way the world might have been so that in some other possible world, maybe I would have had one less hair on my head, but everything else would have been the same. Or in another possible world, I might never have existed at all, might never have been born. So these possible worlds are just descriptions of the way reality might have been. And, and the claim here is that if it's possible in that sense that a greatest conceivable being exists, then he must actually exist. Awesome. <laughs> now, that's been so that's been heavily criticized. Yeah, although you, you see where the the controversial point I should say is is not where the average person would think it is. The average person would think, well, it doesn't follow from the fact that God is possible that therefore he's real. You can't make that jump from possibility to actuality. They, they think that's the weak point of the argument, that somehow you're defining God into existence. But in fact, that's not the weak point or the controversial step in the argument. Once you admit that God's existence is really possible, then it follows rigorously and logically that he must actually exist. Because if God is possible, it follows that he exists necessarily. And if something is possibly necessary, then it's just necessary. So the, the real controversial premise in the argument is the premise that it's possible that God exists. And what's odd about that, of course, is that most atheists do grant that it's possible that God exists. They, they claim maybe God doesn't exist, but most of them would say, well, it's possible. But the ontological argument shows that if it's even possible that God exists, then it follows that God must actually exist. So in order to deny this argument, what the atheist has to do is to deny that it is even possible that God exists. Well, for those of us who are still trying to get a grasp of this argument, for example, I could see someone saying, well, you know, it is possible for me to imagine uh, the perfect woman, you know, or a, or a pink unicorn. But just because I can imagine it doesn't mean it's not compelling evidence that it actually exists. Right, and I would totally agree with that, because there isn't any reason to think that if the perfect woman or pink unicorn exists in some possible world, that it exists in every possible world. You see, there's no problem in thinking that that exists in some other possible world, but not in every world. In other words, that's because the existence of those things isn't necessary. But what we're saying here is that it's possible that there be a being which is omniscient, omnipotent, and morally perfect in every possible world. So that the correct analogy here, Pat, would be 
imagine some mathematical equation that is so complex that you can't solve it. You know, you see it on the blackboard, and you don't know if it's true or not. But what you do know is that if it's true, because it's a mathematical equation, if it's true, it's necessarily true. And if it's false, it's necessarily false. So you see, if it's even possible that that equation is true, then it follows that it's necessarily true. It cannot be possibly true and yet not be necessarily true because it's either necessarily true or it's necessarily false. So if something, if it's possible for something to be necessary, then it, it is necessary. So what you would have to say about that equation is that if it's false, it's not even possible that it's true. It's necessarily false. Well, that's quite a profound argument there. Well, let's move on to the next one. <laughs> well, I, I hope that, that that's clear. That try think think about the mathematical equation and think that with a mathematical equation, there's no chance that it would just happen to be true. It's either necessarily true or it's necessarily false. And it's the same with the existence of God. God either necessarily exists or he necessarily does not. That is to say, God's existence is either impossible or it's necessary. That, that's the way to think about it, is that there isn't any, any third way. God's existence is either impossible or it's necessary. And so, which do you think it is? You know, Mr. Atheist, do you think it's impossible? If not, then it's necessary. Why is it called the ontological argument? What does ontological mean? Well, it comes from the Greek word ontos, which means being. And it's an attempt to, re to uh, deduce the being of God or the existence of God from the very concept of God. And so that's why it's called ontological. It tries to deduce God's being from the very concept of God. And some claimed that once you really understand the concept of who or what God is, then you'll see that he has to exist. Now, I think Anselm was wrong about that. I think what Anselm should have concluded is once you understand the concept of God, you see that God's existence is either necessary or it's impossible. And Anselm didn't, he just overlooked the idea that it was impossible because I think he thought it was obvious that God's existence is possible. So for Anselm, he thought that once you understood the concept of God, you see that God's existence is necessary. But what modern philosophers have said is, well, it's either necessary or it's impossible. So I would say that there's something of a consensus among contemporary philosophers, whether they be atheists or theists, that God's existence is either impossible or it's necessary. So you can state the ontological argument conditionally, even if I can't prove to you that God's existence is possible, I can at least say that if it's possible, then God exists. So even that modest conclusion flows out of the ontological argument, that if God's existence is possible, then he exists. And of course, then the whole question arises, well, is it possible? And one could talk about that further. But even if you, even if you can't prove that it's possible, at least you've got that modest conclusion that if God's existence is possible, then he exists. Seems like a lot hangs on the term necessary. If something is a necessary being or exists necessarily, 
It cannot not exist. Right. It's necessary. Something that is necessary cannot not exist. That's exactly right. And therefore, if it's possible that there be such a being, that means he exists in some possible world. But if he exists in one, he exists in all of them because he's necessary. I'm convinced. I'm, I'm in. I'm convinced. <laughs> I, I, really, I was initially I like a skeptic about the ontological argument, but I think once you you think about it, it's right. It's it, it is correct. And and the really controversial premise in the argument is: Is God's existence possible? Well, I think it is, uh, and I think the other arguments for God's existence give us grounds for thinking that it's possible. Well, if somebody if somebody proved that God was impossible, the ontological argument would fail. But who's going to do that? Right. Well, some have tried, but, uh, yeah, how could you prove that God's existence is impossible? I suppose you could do it, Kevin, by trying to show there's a contradiction in the concept of God. And some philosophers have tried to do that. We've all heard the old arguments, can God make a stone too heavy for him to lift? You know, to try to show that it's impossible for there to be an omnipotent being. So there are some atheist arguments or attempts out there to show that God's existence is impossible, but I don't think any of them have a remote chance of working. Pat, you got this down? <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm All getting right. there. Good, good deal. <laughs> well, let's take a look at this other argument, the design argument or the teleological argument. Explain uh, that one to us. Well, there are, again, all sorts of different design arguments, and the basic thrust of the arguments is to say that the universe exhibits a certain complex order which cries out for explanation. And this explanation must be one of three alternatives. It's either necessity, that that's the way the universe has to be. It's physically necessary that the universe have this complex order. Or secondly, it's just due to chance. It's an accident. Or thirdly, it's due to design. There is some sort of an intelligence that has designed the universe to have this complex order. Now, what that complex order is, uh, you can take your pick. Some people appeal to the complex order in the biological realm, the intricacy of the parts and organs of animals, like the eye or the brain, or the intricacy of the complex order in the cell, the micro-machinery within a cell itself, or others appeal to the origin of life or the origin of consciousness as part of this complex order or the whole evolutionary process in fact could be uh, your complex order that would cry out for an explanation or it could be the fine-tuning of the universe itself the initial conditions of the big bang which are necessary if evolution is even to take place at all in the universe so what that complex order is is multifarious and various. There's all kinds of examples of this complexity in the universe. And the argument will then be, well, what is the best explanation? And you will try by the process of elimination to show that physical necessity and chance are not plausible explanations, but the design is a plausible and successful explanation. And therefore, there must be a transcendent designer of the universe. Now, Dr. Craig, what about the objection some skeptics raise that, uh, no, we actually impose our ideas of design 
on things we see out there in the universe. Yeah, I think that that's absurd. I, I find it incredible that people could be attracted to that. For example, do they think that the order that is exhibited by galaxies and the fine-tuning of the universe didn't exist before human consciousness came on the scene? I mean, that would be absurd. What about the order that existed in a Tyrannosaurus Rex or or a Pachycephalosaurus or a Stegosaurus? Clearly, those organisms existed and were living before human beings ever came on the scene. So you can't attribute to that order or, or complexity to human beings. Now, perhaps the skeptic might say, well, they really don't have that order, that there, there isn't any order. But that's just, again, patently false. In order for a single cell to exist, there has to be enormous complexity in its internal machinery, not to speak of the complexity that an ant, much less a stegosaurus, exhibits in order to be a living organism. So the idea that this is just an illusion of human consciousness, I think, is just patently absurd. Well, let me give you an illustration that I often hear. I think they're called fairy circles, where mushrooms will um, spew out their spores in a circular pattern, their seed in a circular pattern. Yeah. And the next morning you come and there's a circle of mushrooms there. And uh, people will say, oh, look, there must have been a fairy or some intelligence that came and put these in circles, when really it wasn't. It's just the pattern of which mushrooms shoot out their, their seed. Right, right. But you see, that's not saying that the design is an imposition by human consciousness. That's not say that human consciousness made those things uh, jump up in a circle. Rather, that's an appeal to the first alternative, physical necessity. There are underground spores that send out these tendrils that make it physically necessary that the mushrooms come up in this circular shape. So that's very different, you see, from saying that design is an illusion of human consciousness. There is an objective order there. There are objective circular patterns in which the mushrooms come up, but there is a physical explanation for that. So with regard to the complex order in the universe, the non-theist will appeal to things like neo-Darwinian theory of evolution, uh, natural selection operating on genetic mutation resulted in the complex order that is exhibited in cells and in uh, living organisms. Uh, for the fine-tuning it, the origin of the universe, he can't use Darwinian explanation to explain that because that existed right at the initial conditions of the universe. And so the non-theist is driven to postulate a many-worlds hypothesis, that there are parallel, unseen universes that are randomly ordered in their initial conditions, so that by chance alone, somewhere in this world ensemble, a finely-tuned universe like ours would originate. These are attempts to provide, you see, explanations for uh, why this complex order exists, but it's not saying the complex order is itself illusory or an imposition of the human mind. How about the objection we hear that, well, there are flaws in the design of the universe or in biology. Uh, There are systems that seem inefficient. Yeah. Uh, Again, I think that's such a weak objection, and William Paley, in his great natural theology, I think already pointed out how silly this objection is. Paley gives the example of being out in the English countryside walking across a heath, which uh, for American listeners is a sort of scrubby, 
uh, rugged area of low-lying uh, bushes and so forth. And, and Haley says, imagine you find a pocket watch lying there on the heath. Now, he said, no one would think that this pocket watch or this mechanism came to exist just by the random natural processes of the elements falling together to form this device. It's too complex for that. And he said this inference that this was a, a product of design wouldn't be in any way undercut if the watch exhibited flaws, that it didn't keep perfectly accurate time, say it lost, you know, three minutes every hour, or maybe the spring needed constant winding, or the, the glass case over the thing was uh, cracked or, or shrouded. Clearly, the fact that it wasn't an optimal timekeeping advice wouldn't do anything to undercut the inference that this product was the product of intelligent design. And exactly the same with the universe. Um, I don't think that so-called flaws do anything to show that this isn't the product of design, that the objector is confusing optimality with design, and, and the claim isn't that the universe exhibits some kind of optimal design. I'm not even sure if that's a coherent concept. I don't think anybody else knows what optimal design is. Well, no, what, what is an optimally designed bear, for example? You know, maybe an optimally designed bear would have aluminum claws, you know, so that it could dig, or maybe it would have wings so it could fly, you know, or wheels so it could go faster, you know, but, but then you're not talking about a bear anymore. So I think that when you get into uh, talk about optimally designed organisms, you are really off into something there that you don't, you don't really have any understanding of what you're talking about. Even. Well, somebody, okay. so if somebody would say the optimally designed car would have a hot tub in it. But but if it did, uh, you get terrible gas mileage. Right. I, I doubt, Kevin, that the idea of an optimally designed automobile is a coherent idea. I think that's probably an incoherent combination of words. There is no such thing as an optimally designed automobile. I think the next move the skeptic usually makes in this is, okay, maybe there's not optimal design, but there sure is some things that are evil that exist uh yeah. like like parasites and 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 scorpions and snakes and, yeah. and, and, and it is important to see kevin that those are not attacks upon design a, a scorpion or a tapeworm is a marvel of complexity far beyond anything that human engineering could develop i hate mosquitoes but a mosquito is a marvel of, of engineering and design. So this wouldn't, again, call into question anything about the design inference. What it would call into question would be the goodness of the designer. Maybe the, the designer isn't a very nice guy, you know, or something, so he created all these mosquitoes and tapeworms and things. But the problem with that is that the design argument isn't meant to, to, to prove the moral qualities of the designer. That's asking the argument to prove something it's not intended to prove. It's intended to prove merely that there is a kind of cosmic intelligence that has designed the world. And the moral properties of this being just don't come into view in this argument any more than the moral properties of the creator come into view in the Kalam cosmological argument. Got to go to another argument for that. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's different arguments to get at the moral qualities yeah. of, the, of, of God. Well, in our final minute together, Dr. Craig, I'm going to ask you a question you often hear. 
Why isn't the evidence for God more clear? Why not the glowing cross in the sky? Yeah. I think that God, in his omniscience, knew what kind of evidence would be most effective in bringing the maximum number of people to salvation and to a free decision to enter into the kingdom of God and to accept his love and forgiveness. And if more evidence would have been more effective in bringing more people to salvation, I feel quite confident that God would have given it. But I think he's given uh, the evidence that he knew would be effective in, in bringing the optimal balance of people to faith in him. Great. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. William Lane Craig, one of the finest Christian apologists of our day. And Dr. Craig, you've got a website that people can go to for more information. Tell us about that website. Well, we just put it up in late April. It's called reasonablefaith.org, reasonablefaith.org. And it features all kinds of free material, podcasts, articles that are downloadable, transcripts of debates, uh, audiovisual downloads, lots of great material there that I would invite people to come and have a look at at reasonablefaith.org. That's reasonablefaith.org, and you can listen to this interview anytime you want at evidenceandanswers.org as well. Well, Dr. Craig, thanks for being with us. It was a pleasure to have you. Uh, it's been great to be with you, Kevin and Pat. Well, we have run out of time today, but there's so much more to talk about with Dr. Craig. Once again, go now to our website, evidenceandanswers.org, and browse through all the resources there, including the entire interview with William Lane Craig. This is cutting-edge material, and we would like to ask you to help us keep Evidence and Answers on the air. If you appreciate a program that intelligently presents the claims of Christ to a doubting world and addresses the hard questions, please support us financially. Just click on the Donate button when you go to evidenceandanswers.org, and any amount you can donate will be such a blessing and will keep us expanding. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.